0: As I mentioned, uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to take verses 15 through 21 today. 15 through 21 of chapter 2 of Galatians. So let me, maybe I can start by asking you this. Do you believe that God saves us from his wrath by something he has done? Or do you believe that at the end of the day, it's something you have done? Is it something he has said and done or is it something that you have said and done? The book of Galatians helps us sort out the answer to that critical question. And again, this paragraph that we're to in the book of Galatians, I can't overstate this enough. It's so critical. It is like, it is the most important paragraph in the entire book. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it that extremely because I believe that. This is one of the, one of the most, I, I think when you really understand the implications of what Paul's saying in this paragraph. It's one of the most important paragraphs in the entire New Testament. It helps us put to rest so many rebuttals that we have against the gospel. It helps us put to rest legalism. So I feel like when I started my prep time this week, I did the same thing I do every week. Got on my knees and I prayed. First thing. But my prayer this week was like, Lord, help me not not to mess this up. That, That was my prayer. I feel like I have this tray, like I'm a waiter, and I have this tray full of all these fancy wine glasses full of wine, and I'm trying to deliver them to you, and I just don't want to drop it. Uh, I'm so afraid I'm going to. But it's just seven verses, but these seven verses, it's, a, it's, a, it's an antidote. There's an antidote in, this seven, in these seven verses. It's, a, it's an antidote to legalism. Religious people, like you and I, were prone to legalism. Today's the antidote to that poison. If you give in to legalism, it will poison your faith, it will poison the the truths that are meant to free you, it will poison everything you you try to live out in this Christian life. This is the antidote that we constantly need to come back to, or we're just going to live in the poison of legalism. So remember, this is in the context, what we're reading today, of a rebuke. The Apostle Paul was rebuking the Apostle Peter. They preached the same exact gospel message. But whenever you would observe Peter's life in this moment that took place at Antioch, which was in a group of churches known uh, known in an area known as uh, Galatia, when you viewed his life, he wasn't living out this gospel that he preached. And so Paul did the right thing. He did the hard thing. He He had the courage to speak up and say something. You're wrong, Peter. You're wrong and let me tell you why. So last week we studied four verses. That was the part where Paul said, you're wrong. We talked about the value of being told you're wrong. We need to be told that sometimes. Peter needed it. That was the part of the rebuke in which Paul said, you're wrong. These seven verses we're studying today, this is the let me tell you why part. You're wrong. Let me tell you why. So you know, rebukes, they can be dismissed pretty quickly if you don't know why you're being rebuked. Maybe you've been around the pool with your kiddo this summer and don't run on the concrete, don't run around the pool. Kids love to run around the pool and, and uh, that's when bad things happen, right? Why? Well, because I said so. You tell your kids not to do something and you say, because I said so, or something like that, it never really gets you that far. Give them a reason, tell them why. If they ask why, my kids know if they ask why, I'm gonna tell them. <laughs> don't run around the pool, why? Well, let me tell you why. Because this is concrete, and it's wet, and you're barefoot right now, which makes it especially slippery. And whenever you slip on that concrete, your head's going to hit that pavement like a coconut, and it's going to split open. It takes five minutes to stitch that up, but it's going to take that ER six hours to do it, and we're going to spend the whole day there, and we're not going to get any more swimming done. Is that how you want to spend your summer right now? Sheesh, Dad. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, when you, when, you're, when you tell somebody they're wrong, they need to know a reason, right? And, and, and those reasons need to be detailed. They, the, the, the reasons why someone is wrong, it drives home the rebuke, right? Paul right now has said, you're wrong, Peter. Now he's going to drive it home. He's going to get into the details. Remember, he's opposing Peter to his face. So what we're reading right now, we can imagine the scene. Paul is saying it right to Peter's face in front of an audience we're told they're sitting down they're likely having a meal and there are jewish christians there and there are gentile christians remember gentile just means you're not jew there's to jews there were jews and everybody else and everybody else was known as gentiles well they're all sitting there they're all christians but paul is calling out peter in front of all of these christians opposing him to his face because he was doing something wrong here's what he was doing wrong he reverted back to following the jewish rituals and rites uh, of, of the law and so when he was around gentiles exclusively he would he would he knew he was free from the law that's what the gospel uh, freed him from, and so so when he was around these Gentiles, he could eat Gentile food. He, he could have things like pork chop. He could pork chops. He could have the the shrimp or the, the bacon rack shrimp, like we talked about last week. He could have all of these things and enjoy the freedom of being able to to eat these things and not not follow the dietary laws, not follow all of the rituals and ceremonies that were so critical before in the old covenant. But when Jews would come to town, Jewish Christians, these were. Or ethnic Jews that believed Jesus was the Messiah, a lot of them had a really hard time with that freedom and they would, they would actively teach against that. And so Paul was always having to correct them. But when they showed up, Peter, knowing that was their inclination, he'd, he'd back away and avoid the Gentiles like he used to before in the old covenant. He would follow all the dietary laws to a T he would be a little more critical of those Gentiles than he normally was. He would say things like, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe they do need to get circumcised to really make their salvation count and things like that. Paul's calling it out. Before this goes any further, you're wrong, and let me tell you why you're wrong. Remember, here's how he said it. This is in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? How are you going to—the whole issue was about how they were trying to impose the law— on these Gentiles unfairly. The gospel freed them from that. So how are, you you get to live like a Gentile whenever these guys aren't around. How are you going to force them to to live like a Jew and follow dietary laws? And why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? We've been freed from that, from the gospel. And so he's correcting him. He's falling back into that age-old sin of legalism that you and I are all prone to, and he needs the antidote. Today is the antidote. This is why legalism isn't the solution that you think it is. All right, verses 15 and 16. Let's just, here's here's what he says first. In that context, still talking to Peter, and there's still people listening. Here's what he says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We could spend a lot of time mining the depths of that passage, but here's the gist of his argument. Here's the gist of his argument. You should know better than this, Peter. You know the gospel. And you know the law doesn't save anybody. It never has. What are you thinking? We're Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. We're Jew sinners. (laughs) That's what he's saying. They didn't grow up with the law. They didn't grow up with these rituals and and customs and and ceremonial things. They don't know anything about that. But we did, and we know more than anybody on the planet Earth, you can't live up to that law. You cannot obey enough. To be justified before god that's why we just like them need to put our faith in jesus we need a savior just like they need a savior of course every jew understood they couldn't follow the law perfectly that was obvious it was a big time dilemma you could read back in the old the the psalms from from david for example here's psalm 143 verse 2 Do not bring your servant into judgment, O Lord, for no one is living righteous before you. They understood that nobody's perfect. Don't, Don't bring us into judgment based on our merit, Lord. No one is perfect. No one is righteous before you. So Paul's reminding Peter in this moment, listen, the whole reason we put our faith in Jesus is because we of all people know that we can't be saved from the law. Jesus enough Jesus obeyed enough I don't obey enough we haven't obeyed enough none of us Jew or Gentile Jesus obeyed enough for us he did it he did what we couldn't do he did it on our behalf Jesus was righteous for us and we have access to his righteousness through faith in his works not by our works that's the new covenant that you and I live under. You know, when you we, when we use this word covenant, it's just it's a promise. And so we speak about the old covenant and the new covenant. We're talking about the promises of God. When we talk about the promises of this new covenant, here's what this new covenant and this gospel of Jesus promises us. It promises us that Jesus was perfectly sinless. And he was sinless on our behalf. He obeyed enough for me. And he obeyed enough for you. And when you put faith in his obedience, all of his righteousness is given to you. It's imputed to you through that faith. That's what the new covenant promises us. So I don't need to have any hope in following any law or any rule. I know already from the get-go that I'm not perfect. And I don't have to be perfect to be loved by God. And so you can imagine, though, how difficult it would be to to make that shift in the way that you're thinking if you were raised a Jew. And so Paul, when he would write other books, likely wrote the book of of Hebrews. When you read in in chapter 8, verse 13, here's how he explains that. In speaking of a new covenant, he says, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, to vanish away. That's exactly what happened. When, when Jesus arrived, what he did called, caused the old covenant of, of dietary laws, all those clean laws, those ceremonies, it all vanished away. All the animal sacrifices, it all vanished away. It wasn't needed. It was all just to provide a framework so that we could understand Jesus. We needed that. We needed that so that we could understand just what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of God's people. But all of that vanished away when when the gospel played out in the life of Jesus and as it was preached. And so he's the righteousness that we could never get through the law. We knew, Jews, God's people, we, we always knew we could never live up to that. Now we have that righteousness that no one could ever obtain on their own. When Jesus died for our sins, now we have the atonement that there were never enough animals to sacrifice for. You ever notice, they, well, you sacrifice an animal for one sin, well then you go sin again. There's always another animal to be, to be sacrificed, because you never stop sinning. Jesus ended all of that. He is the once and for all sacrifice. That's how it's explained in the New Testament and in books such as the book of Hebrews. He's the once and for all sacrifice to make us right before God. He's the atonement I could never quite get. It's because of Jesus that we're completely right with God. We're justified. It isn't that we've never sinned. It isn't that we don't currently sin. It's just that Jesus was enough to cover all of that sin. Is that what you believe? Is that what you believe the gospel is? Is that truly what you put your faith in? Does your life believe that? If you looked at your life and evaluated how you live, does it reflect that? Well, like I said, in in Peter's life in that moment, it wasn't reflecting that at all. He had a rebuttal. Yeah, but, you know, his life was saying, yeah, but, you got to do this. Yeah, but I still, I better do this when they're around. Yeah, but I better live this way so they don't get the wrong idea. He was trying to be perfect again all of a sudden. Do you have any sort of yeah, but? Like, whenever I Whenever I stand up here and I'm preaching the gospel, or whenever you're hearing the gospel, wherever situation that is, you're loved and accepted by God because of Jesus. Do you have any sort of well yeah, but you still gotta do this. You you, you still gotta think this way, or you still gotta, you still gotta, if you still if you got a rebuttal like that, that's legalism. You're infected. You need an antidote. You're just acting religious. You're not being Christian, you're just acting religious when you act like that. I mean, religious people, like you and I, we're so prone to legalism, we just constantly revert back to it. Because when we hear the gospel of grace, it makes us nervous. That's what, it, when, when you really truly, you know, get into the weeds and understand this message of grace that's in the Bible, it's going to make you nervous if you're religious. Because, well, what's it matter then how we live? If we're saved purely by grace, what about our works? If we don't have to work our way into salvation, what about our works? What's the point? Jewish Christians were getting really nervous about that. We have all these things that we have to do or we're not right with God and the gospel ended all of that. Well, then what about all these things that we should do? (laughs) They're nervous. Well, the same reason they were nervous in that day, religious people and Christians in particular, we still get nervous about today. Hey, be careful with that message of grace, man. You go telling people that you don't have to be good, be good in order to be loved by God. They're going to end up being really, really bad. I don't want to tell somebody they don't have to be good in order to be loved by God. That's a that's a license to sin. They're just going to. What's the point, right? Why would I Why would I even try? to be good, knowing that I can't be good enough, why not just believe in the gospel of Jesus and then just go live however I want and do whatever I want because nothing matters, right? What's the point of good works? Isn't that a reasonable rebuttal? It makes sense. It's logical. It's good. It, 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 it's it, If you haven't gotten to that place, you're not even understanding grace right? Right? When you truly hear the message of grace, you've got to get to that point to where you ask that question and push back against the gospel a little bit. And if you're not pushing back, you're not even trying to understand it. What's the point of our good works? You see, that question is in our minds. It's in the minds of every person who's ever confronted about the go- by the gospel of grace because we have this warped, conditional foundation understanding of religion. We want to believe this way. We want to believe, because mostly every religion works like this, we want to believe, hey, you want to be right with God? Obey. You want to be right with God? You need to obey, then God will love you, then you'll be saved. That makes sense, that feels good, that sounds right, but Christianity says that's positively wrong. That is not what our Bible teaches. From Genesis to Revelation, it is not what it teaches. It doesn't teach... Obey. Then God will love you. Then you'll be saved. It teaches God loves you. Put your faith in his son Jesus and be saved. Now obey. See the difference? Religious people want to put that obey factor in the beginning. They want to emphasize obey. You want to be good enough? Obey. You want to be loved by God? Obey. But Christianity confronts us and it just flips it on its head. Hey, God loves you. Put your faith in the righteousness of Jesus be saved and now in light of that obey it fixes our legalism in a a profound way but again people in their day they're doing the same thing that people in our day are doing hey man that's dangerous i don't know if people will get that or not if you just go around preaching grace all the time it's just going to make people justify their sin and so paul's saying paul anticipates that argument against grace And he preaches against it often in the New Testament. This is one of those places. And he does it subtly here, but when you really get into the weeds again, here's what he's saying. He's anticipating this rebuttal, this age-old rebuttal. And he's saying, here's why you shouldn't think like that. You're thinking wrong. Let Let me encourage you to fix the way you're thinking. In verse 17, it says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He's basically taking that argument and he's saying, Listen, I'm categorically denying. I'm rejecting that argument that I know is going to come out of your mouth. If in Christ, if in this faith in Christ, I am found to be a sinner, Does that mean that Christ is a servant of sin? Does that mean belief in Christ promotes promotes sin and encourages me to sin? Certainly not. He rejects that in the strongest words that he has available to him. You know, one thing that has happened routinely since the the beginning of the journey, you know, whoever's taking this pulpit and preaching, we're preaching this message of grace. It's grace, grace, grace. We wanna keep coming back to grace and, cre- and keep fleshing out grace and understanding grace and preaching grace. And a routine rebuttal that I get from people as I preach this message of grace and as other elders have preached this message of grace is that, hey, if you, if you emphasize grace too much, you're gonna cause people to sin more. You tell, you're, you're gonna convince them that our works don't matter You're going to, the version of the gospel you're you're preaching here is going to make them think they can just go do whatever they want. Well, again, like, when I hear those rebuttals, there's a piece of me that I'm like, you promise you mean that rebuttal? Because that's the same thing they'd say against Paul. And if if you're complaining about our preaching in the same way that they complained about Paul's preaching, it makes me think that we must be preaching the same message. So I get a little giddy when I hear that rebuttal because... That makes, because the gospel of grace makes people nervous, and if they're not getting nervous, they're probably not hearing the gospel of grace. So Paul anticipates this argument, and how he's getting ready to, to uh, refute that rebuttal is he's taking their argument and he's using that right back against them. I love that. You ever, have you ever uh, heard of the style of martial arts called Aikido, Aikido? Not, I think I'm getting that right. What's the store of furniture? IKEA. It's not IKEA. It's Aikido. It's a Japanese style of martial arts. Steven Seagal made it famous in the '90s. I don't know why my parents let me watch those movies, but they did, and now I know what it is. But uh, Aikido, the whole the whole thought behind that style of martial arts is that you want to use someone's strength against them. You want to you want to use the energy that they're you know, putting towards you, and you want to you want to take that and, you know you know, take it back towards them or whatever, <laughs> you know, you want to use their strength and momentum against themselves. So if they throw a punch at you, if you can't tell, I know nothing about martial arts other than what Google has explained to me, but it, it, when they throw a punch at you and lunge at you, you want to use that momentum to throw them into the wall behind you. That's, a, that's the gist of Aikido uh, and that martial arts. And so, Paul is using like this theological Aikido move. Like, oh, I know what you're going to say. Works don't matter with the message I'm preaching. Well, let me show you how works don't matter according to what you believe. Your argument can't stand on its own two legs. It's, in, it's incredible how he does this. I, I absolutely love it because he's, he's proving to them that if you believe this gospel I'm preaching is a license to sin and prove that works don't matter, let me tell you what you're trying to say, says the exact same thing. If you want to play that game, if you believe in a works-based salvation, let me show you why it's true that you should believe works don't matter according to what you believe. He, he says, he, he, and he's basically saying this, I'm giving you the gist of the argument so you can understand it, and then we're going to read it. So he's saying, think about this. The gospel of grace says put faith in Christ. Your works don't save you. Jesus does that. If you put your faith in the law, it says works don't save you, and then that's it. So what's the point of good works then? You can't live up to the law. You can't be perfect. So what's the point of even trying? You want to take that argument and and use it against the gospel of grace? Well, I'm going to use it against your legalism. If you can't be perfect, well, then your works can't save you. So what's the point of even trying to be good? See how, he's, see how he, he's a step ahead in the argument. So here, here's, what he, here's how he is getting to that point in verse 18. For, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying, if I rebuild this law that the gospel has completely annihilated, and if I, if I rebuild that and use it in the way the law was meant to be used, what will it do for me? It'll tell me I'm a sinner. That's what it'll do for you. That's all the law's ever done. It's never saved anybody. It's only ever proven that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. I'll just prove myself to be a sinner. Well, I already know that. I need a Savior. Paul's convincing them that their argument can't stand on their own two legs. And he's saying, listen, you can't obey enough. You know that, I know that, we know that above all people because we're Jews, we grew up the, with the law. So don't try to enforce that legalism on that on them. Don't enforce that legalism on the Gentiles. And don't try to say our works don't matter. That's all wrong. You're thinking wrong. Not to mention, you're denying the redemptive work of God. You, t- you want to talk about promoting sin? You're denying the very work that God has done to save us. Rejecting his redemptive work, that's the worst kind of sin there possibly is. That promotes sin more than anything, is rejecting the the salvation that God has given us. So don't come at me with that, Paul's saying. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So he's continuing along this line of thought he's saying he's saying it's through the law the law is useful right it's through that law that i understand i'm that sinner that i discovered my need and it's through that law it's through belief in that law and following that law that gave me the framework to understand i needed that messiah and jesus is that messiah i was able to understand him that he is the Messiah through that law, and now that I know he's my Messiah and my Savior, I've died to the law. It's dead to me. Legalism died. There's a sense in in, in which we all need to have this epiphany because we're prone to legalism and we all need to have this epiphany that we're freed from trying to be perfect. Isn't that a relief? Are you tired of trying to be perfect? Isn't it frustrating? You try to live up to the perfection of God, and it's so defeating. That's what Jesus would teach. you would say, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when you finally die to this legalism, Paul's saying you can finally live to God. Because you're free from having to be perfect. So experience this freedom that Christ is offering you. This perfection that he provides you. Live in that and be free from legalism. Okay, but pastor, come on, what about works then? What about works? Does, does, doesn't that mean we're all just free to sin then if he's covered it all? And it's... and it, Again, you're thinking all all wrong. Paul is reshaping how we're thinking about this. The gospel reshapes how we think about good works. Now, unlike under the law, now I can pursue this righteousness with the freedom of knowing I don't have to be perfect. Whereas before, when I'm living under the law, I'm pursuing righteousness, but it's a damning pursuit of righteousness. It's just proving that I can't do it. It's a damning pursuit. It's teaching me that I'm not good enough. So now in Christ, in this new covenant, we have this free, saving pursuit of righteousness because Christ's works were enough. We don't add any work to it at all. Do you see the difference there? Again, when you have to be perfect, righteousness is pretty defeating. So we have a flawed pursuit of righteousness, but we are in Christ. Therefore, in that pursuit, we can have hope and contentment and rest. Here's how Paul says it. Look in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, I died, my old self died. When Jesus died on that cross, it's as if my old self died too. When Jesus resurrected, that was the beginning of my new self, my new way of thinking. I've been crucified with Christ, and now I'm something entirely new. So now, as I pursue this life of righteousness, as I do this life, when Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh, with its ups and downs and its struggles and its imperfections, I live by faith in the Son of God. So as I fumble, as I trip up, and as I get caught and snared in sin, I'm living by faith. And living by faith means I remember those two things that Paul just said. When I'm, when I'm in the muck, when I know when I'm confronted with my imperfections, when I'm confronted with my sin and my inability to be perfect, I remember, God loves me. He gave his son for me. And that is enough. Those two things are enough. Don't ever add to those two things. Faith in Christ gets real simple. It's it's infinitely complex, but yet it is so, so simple. When you are confronted with your sin, your fallenness, you remember, God loves me, and he gave his son for me. He gave his son for me. Therefore, I am right with him, and that's it. Yeah, but, I, don't you still have to? No, stop the yeah, butts. Enough with the yeah, buts. Stop it. Keep coming back to just those two truths. God loves me, and he gave his son to die for me. It's enough, and that's that. Well, here are the ramifications of wandering from that. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Wow. You want to add to what Jesus did? You're erasing what Jesus did. That's what he's saying. When it comes to someone's right standing before God, being justified before God, here's what the gospel says. When you think about that salvation you have in Christ, if you insert your performance in any way, shape, or form in the the equation of salvation, you have erased what Jesus has done. You have functionally gotten rid of, and you've made his death pointless. It's needless. If you try to say that's how black and white Paul gets, (laughs) you think Jesus either saved me or he didn't. You either save yourself or you don't. Paul says you don't get to swirl that in a bucket and and say, "Well, it's a little bit, a little bit of this, a little bit of that." You got to meet halfway. You got to come this far. God comes this far. You go that far. None of that. He rejects all of that notion. If you want to add your performance, your work, whether it be circumcision or baptism or walking the old lady across the street, whatever whatever you want to think is a good work. If you add any of it in the equation of your salvation, you're saying, I don't need you, Jesus. I got this. That's what Paul teaches. Don't be mad at the messenger. Of course, we don't believe that because Scripture doesn't teach that. Right? We know that what Christ has done is unmatched and infinitely important, and we don't add any legalistic notion to it whatsoever. So today, this critical message, this critical point in the book of Galatians, it's an invitation for you to trade in your legalism in pursuit of perfection for the holiness of Christ himself. That's what he's offering us in this text. Don't white-knuckle your performance so much Rest in the holiness of Christ. Be free in Christ today. Pursue a life of righteousness while having faith in Christ, knowing that he is enough and you are not. That is freedom in Christ. Now when you trip and fall, it doesn't devastate you like it used to. You don't have to live wondering if God loves you You don't reflect on your life and and get nervous about where you stand with God. You reflect on the life of Christ, and you have assurance that you know you can stand before God with confidence. You can stand before God knowing you are seen as perfectly clean, perfectly righteous. Your sins are entirely washed away because they've been punished on the cross, because Christ did it on your behalf. Put your faith in that today. Put your faith in that today and then watch how that faith infects the rest of your life and how you interact with those around you and how you deal with how they think about you and how you deal with the the brokenness of this world. None of that has the last word. God had the last word through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time in Scripture today. And a reminder that we don't add any work that we do to the salvation that you give us. What a great reality that is. What a relief that is. Lord, if we did have to follow some rite or ceremony or custom, or if we had to only talk a certain way or walk a certain way in order to be loved by you, what would be the point? What would be the point of even trying? How could we live up to perfection? Works would have no, you know, good works would have no place in my life. No, there's no point in even trying. The Lord, we have a pursuit of righteousness that means something. You were good on our behalf, and, and that reality and that gospel that saves us is also a gospel that changes us. We pursue righteousness now knowing that you're enough, which means we can have progress, We can see real change. We can see real repentance and lasting repentance in our life. Lord, help us to live in that as believers so that we can be transformed by this gospel that you saved us with. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.